Wasn't that excellent? Thank you very much. So, I'm still trying to decide what I want to preach today. Because if you've been keeping up with your reading, we're no longer in Thessalonians. We've hit uh, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2. Now, if you're a, a Bible scholar, you realize this is probably one of the most treasured and detested books of the New Testament. It is treasured because it set up the formula for how we do church. This ecclesiology set our leadership structures and things like that that started in the New Testament that we still look to today for guidance. When we elected deacons, we turned to some of these verses to, to help us qualify men of God who have been called to serve in that capacity. And as a church, we take these words seriously, but it's also most contested. So for about the last 150 years, 2 Timothy has been contested even in its authorship. So if you're looking at books when you try to study the Bibles, it's always good to get a few things in the background. One, who wrote it? When did they write it? Why did they write it? These kind of things. It just kind of helps you get in the mind of the person writing, especially when you look at letters. Because when you look at letters, it is basically half of a conversation. So you have the, the writer's half, but you don't have the recipient's half. You don't know what they're addressing. We have to put clues and things together. And, and many scholars have pieced together cultural aspects. Uh, they ha have found things that help us get in the mind of the person receiving the letter. Because as I've reminded you before, that when we read the scriptures, we live in three different worlds. We live in the world where things took place. So that is when Paul was working with Timothy on the mission field and Apollos and Barnabas and all those. That was the first world when the Holy Spirit came down and worked through people just like me and you back then. Not just in the New Testament times, but when Moses was called by the burning bush and all these kind of things. It's when God broke into human history and things happened. Then you have a second world. The world of the text. It is the Bible as we know it. It is when someone was inspired to put pen to paper and record either an event or a prophecy or a declaration or even write a letter to a young minister who needed advice on how to handle a certain topic. But then now we have the world that we live in. It is the world before the text. It is what we bring to the pages of scriptures because sometimes we bring to the pages of scripture things that aren't there. It's the lens in which we see the world. And so when we read the scriptures, we look at it from a lens of West Texans in Floydata, Texas and all the experiences that we have had. We see it through the lens of democracy and post-enlightenment time. And we look into science differently than the people who looked back then. Did you know at one time people thought that the world was floating on a disk and that the waters float around and, and all this kind of stuff? It's interesting. Google it if you don't understand some of these things. Did you know church leaders, men who wrote things for the church and who taught students and stuff were burn at the stake because they dare said that the earth was not the center of everything. That our understanding of the solar system was vastly different. It's interesting how time changes and how ebbs and flows. 
But as God revealed in His Scripture back then, He reveals today in His Scripture today. But we have to be careful how we attend to the reading of Scripture. Because it is the inerrant Word of God. It is God's truth. But it wasn't written as a formula that would stand for the same thing for all people. It's a living document. It is what the Holy Spirit uses to communicate with us today. And so as we look at the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy today, we have to look at it with eyes attuned to what the Spirit is doing. So, so what is the basic structure of this book? Basically, in the first chapter, Paul writes Timothy, a co-worker of his, because he has tasked him to go. He has commissioned him in this first paragraph to go to Ephesus and confront some problems. We had the book of Ephesians not too long ago. This was a church that was, was growing in, in a, a metropolitan that was growing. It had the right ingredients to thrive. It had people coming in, new blood. It had resources. It had all these kind of things, but it also had one of the most dangerous things that you can run into, a culture completely different from the gospel. It was different. They lived in a world of many gods, it was common to worship the emperor as a god and all these kind of things. And there was special cults and these hidden secret societies. They were prevalent in this society. And sometimes the prevalent culture influences how we do church. So what do I mean by that? Sometimes our culture dictates what we do because we live in a culture. We are conditioned by a culture and we see the way our culture teaches us to see. If I came up here wearing a loincloth and carrying a spear, would you be offended? You probably would make some phone calls, <laughs> at the very least. But in some cultures, that would be highly appropriate. That would be how the leader dressed. Nathan has in his office a speaking stick. Isn't that what it's called? And so you carry the stick if you want to speak. So as the tribal went around, you, you whoever had the spear, stick got to speak now there's something interesting about this stick because it helps in arguments if you pull on the top a knife appears <laughs> but in the culture it came from his dad got it on a missionary trip didn't he in the culture it came from it was very much appropriate now i think i want to start doing business meetings with that talking stick <laughs> leading stick i don't know it's got a knife in it. it's pretty cool But as we look at things, we have to understand that the lenses that we see life conditions how we see the world around us. And sometimes our lenses cloud our judgment. And so as we're trying to read this letter afresh, as we're trying to read it in the context of the New Testament, I hope you who have read the New Testament along with you are starting to see how it all works together, how things that you used to see as isolated verses are now becoming part of the tapestry that God has placed in the Scriptures. I love to look at the Scriptures as a great mosaic. Each book, each verse has a different tile to put, but it is the masterwork of God our Creator. And it all flows together to point the image of Christ, the truth, the gospel. For it is God's plan of redemption for the whole world. From the dawn of creation to its final redemption when Christ returns. This is a tapestry that we work in. And so Paul is tasked 
Peter, Peter, Paul has tasked Timothy to go confront those in Ephesus that are known as these false teachers, these false leaders, the ones that are causing trouble, some that were leaning into endless genealogy, it says, that promotes speculation rather than stewardship for God. That is the faith. The aim of our charge is love. I love how y'all use that verse today. It's another one of Paul's. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by, persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Speculations and rambling, long genealogies. There are teachers in this church who have been influenced by the culture, who are charismatic leaders, and they are wandering away from the central truth of the gospel. Christ crucified. Christ incarnate who died on our behalf and paid the sins. And so they speculate. And they look at these genealogies. And and they point to the seat of authority that they have found. And what's worse, others have come in. We will see as we pick up in chapter 2 that that Paul begins to address the issues in in Ephesus. And so chapters 1 is... Timothy's commission to go and to confront these false teachers. Chapter 6 wraps it all up and again confirms that commission to go and confront. The chapters in between are his instructions. And so we start with the instructions with the mindful eye that Paul is writing to Timothy to confront issues in the church. And in chapter 2 he starts off by addressing what to do with the men in this church. So let's read along for the first seven verses of chapter 2. And it tells us this. First of all, then, I urge you uh, that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for the kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this reason I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And I'm telling you the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in the faith and truth. I desire then, verse 8, that in every place men should pray lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Prayer. It seems so simple. It seems to be the bedrock of our faith. It is how we invited Jesus Christ to reign in our hearts completely, to put him above all others. Prayer is the starting point of everything we do as Christians. But yet those in Ephesus, it seems, had a problem with prayer. We get ourselves into these positions, don't we? We get ourselves into these positions because we start looking at our own desires, our own wants, our own selfish motives. But prayer does something different. It teaches us not our desires but God's desires for us. Even Jesus Christ addressed this 
when he pointed out the, the Pharisee who was praying and looking up to heaven. And, and even in those prayers, he talked about the selfish motives of his heart. Because his prayer was, Lord, thank you I'm not like that sinner. Lord, thank you I'm not like this destitute person over here. Lord, thank you that I am much better than all around me. But then he lifted up the tax collector who fell to his knees and realized that the life he lived was not one of holiness and righteousness before God. He could not even lift his head to heaven to pray. And all he can repeat is a simple phrase over and over again. Lord, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, is the prayer. But these men in Ephesus had spent more time promoting endless genealogies and doctrine and all these things that were contrary and speculating. It's like when uh, studying the book of Revelations was like the thing to do. And it was almost a mark of orthodoxy on how you interpreted those pages. I once heard a pastor when he was uh, in his early ministry days back in the early 80s. And he would tell of an author who would send him a book in the mail. I may have shared this with you. And, and many times I've gotten books in the mail. It, it, sometimes they, they want you to, to read it, to either buy some to use for your church or, or to kind of give them a sponsorship or a recommendation to others for the work that they've done. But this particular book this pastor received was 1,982 Reasons Christ is Returning This Year. And it went through all of the speculation, all of the genealogies and the dates and pinpointed, and they pinpointed that was the year Christ would return. Well, 82 came and went. He gets a copy of his mailbox the next year. 1,983 reasons Christ will return this year. But it was a mystery even to Jesus to pinpoint the end of days. We live in a time that is already not yet. Christ has come to earth. And he has already defeated death. But we're not yet fully united with him in eternity. We're in that in-between time. We're in the time of the church the dominion of the church who has been tasked by God to go into all the world, sharing the good news, baptizing and making disciples of all nations. We're in that time. We're in the time where we are called to be God's hands and feet. We are called to be ever-present in this world, but not of this world because our citizenship lies in heaven. And so for those men in Ephesus... They had lost their primary tool of battling the devil. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, intercession. For who? For all people. For the lost, so that they may come to know the Lord. For the saved, so that they may live as witnesses unto Christ. Not just in the words that they say, but in the lives that they live. For our leaders... You know, as conservatives, sometimes, you know, we, we look at prayer and the military and things to be hard and fast part of our nation. And we want to pray for our leaders so that we may live quiet lives. We forget it so that we can live holy in righteousness and peace. 
But sometimes when we have a leader that we don't agree with, we don't want to hit our knees and pray. Or if we do, it's for bad things to happen to this person. But the last two presidents show us very clearly, if you didn't pray for this one, but you prayed for the last one, or if you prayed for the last one and not for this one, or however you want to say that, then you're missing the point here. For God is the one who's sovereign ruler of this world, who raises up leaders and puts leaders down, raises up nations and puts them down. What he plants, he can pluck. Our job as Christians, as those who call on the name of Christ, is to first hit our knees and pray. Pray for this country. Pray for the lost. Pray for the saved. Pray for the sick. Pray for the hurting. Pray for the wayward. To pray for them all. So that the conditions would be met that Christ's work will be abounding in this world. So that we may work in a way that Christ is seen in how we live. Seems simple, but that was one of the tasks. Confront the men. Make sure they pray. I love how the Spirit works. I love how it empowers people to do things for God. As we have read through the New Testament together, I had leaders in our church come and ask me, can we pray more? And I said, absolutely. I would love you to pray more. I'd love times that we can do it. Just work out some of the details and let me know. Because when the God lays something on your heart, it's not my job to figure out how to make it happen. It's your job to figure out how we can work together as a community. If God's laying on your heart to start a new ministry, guess what? You're going to need resources. The number one is people. We've got the money somewhere in our budget if we need it. But these men showed up in my office this morning and we prayed together. We prayed for the service. We prayed for those present. We prayed for those who have been here every Sunday and those who may have, haven't been here in a while. And as we saw in the offertory, we had God lay on the heart of a young person to sing for the Lord. Because she has joy in her heart. That's how the Spirit works. And so if we can understand this about prayer, we should also understand this going forward with Paul's argument, or Paul's commission to Timothy, when it also is without anger and quarreling, it tells the men, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let women learn quietly and with all submiss submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. So women, be quiet. Done. We just had all this other great discussion about why we should pray and why we live. And this continues on. So 
why did Paul put this message to Timothy right here in light of his overall commissioning to attack heresy and false teachers in the church at Ephesus? Well, we know Paul was a conformist. Look at how he treats other problems in other areas. And it is basically to conform where we can to society because the church should be a pillar lifting it up, not one tearing it down. In this same letter, Paul also encourages slaves to be obedient to their masters. Slavery was common practice in Paul's day. He doesn't abolish it. But if we start looking closer at his argument, if you, when we come to the book of Philemon and you read it, Philemon is a slave owner, and one Onesimus who came to Paul came as a servant and aided Paul, but he sent him back to Philemon. But he sends Philemon with, or Onesimus with this letter that says, be careful what you do with this guy. He is yours to do with how you want. But remember, he has been a great aid to me, And when you consider how you treat him, remember that you owe me your very life. That because of the preaching, you came to know Jesus Christ that saved you from eternal hell. Your mind's in that. But Paul is careful as he confronts communities and issues. He wasn't an activist like some would have him be, or he wasn't misogynist as some would have him be. For he also uplifted other ladies, other women in the New Testament and lifted them up as examples for these ladies to follow, for these women of the church. So if we look at it, these were women who basically adorned themselves like a fashion show, runway models, who put on every apparel that they could, and it was a status symbol. There was also other cultural things that were degrading because these women came into the church with a very cultural idea of status. They were the new Roman woman, the new one of age, lifted up above the mores of society, and they had the resources to prove it. But then they also went about usurping the authority of those commissioned by God. So if you look at the story in Genesis, and we see how Eve was talking with the serpent and was deceived, this matches what these women were doing. These women were with these false teachers who had deceived them into a contrary gospel. And Timothy was sent into this context to confront false teachings. And some of it was in the women of the church. It wasn't really about what they were wearing. It was about why they were wearing it. Because what they were doing was challenging the structures of the community. They didn't care for the sick, the poor. They cared about their status, their simple, and what that had them to do in society. So Paul said, no more. They are to have none of this. But if we come to the text and we see how, look, it says, be quiet, I have the authority. And we look at it as a power struggle. We're no different than those men who failed to pray. Because in the book of Galatians, Paul writes, Neither male nor female, nor slave nor flea, Greek or or barbarian, we are all the same in Christ. 
And so how do we read this text today? How do we apply it? Do we do like some and say, this is a prohibition for women to ever have any leadership in the church whatsoever for the eternity of time? Well, Ashley, sorry, you're going to have to start looking for a, another, another job. Because if you haven't noticed, as we sing the songs that we sing, it teaches us the theology and the love of God in this church. She prays over the congregation several times. So are we to take people like Beth Moore, who's been a speaker and a Bible teacher for years, and say, you can come and talk, but you can't be this or that? Some have. Or do we look at it and say, oh, that was just for the people in Ephesus. We can, we can look around it and, and say, that time has passed, so this doesn't apply. Some have done that. Some have gone even further. They say, reading these pages, it doesn't sound like the other Paul. So we think this was written by somebody later than Paul in Paul's name because we know that in a common practice of biblical times, people could write in the name of another. It's kind of the way that we would cite a source today. And so a student of Timothy, I mean, a student of Paul wrote to Timothy because he was addressing a very real problem here at Ephesus, one of heresy and Gnosticism and all these other things that plague this early church. It was common. It wasn't thought wrong. But as our modern sensibility, if somebody else wrote it, then it's no good. We need to throw it out. So we just take this letter and throw it out in its entirety. I don't think that's right either. So how do we use these passages today? So the woman was deceived first. So let's use the Garden of Eden example. Eve was deceived first. Eve was deceived because she didn't know. If Eve would have known, would she have done it? Don't know. There's a lot of gray areas in that story on the details of how that goes down. But we do know this. Whether Adam was standing right next to Eve when the serpent came in and he heard everything and didn't stop her or whether she came and gave it to him later, unless she deceived him by saying, oh, this is just something I picked up on the way home. Here, try it. Doesn't sound that way. I think he knew, obviously, what he was getting into. So if the woman is easier to deceive, then the man is too stupid to listen to what the woman says and evaluate it for itself. Is that what we're saying here? Could be. But this wasn't written to the church directly. This was written to Timothy on how to address the issues there in Ephesus. How to confront the false teachers. And it didn't need timidity. It needed a strong man of faith to confront the problems, to confront them, and to eradicate them. I'm not even going to touch verse 15. Yet they shall be saved through childbearing. No one really knows what he was talking about. Roman Catholics say, oh, it's because... Uh, Mary gave birth to, to, to Jesus. That's kind of an allegorical thing, but us moderns, we don't like to use allegories that much. But how do we use it? Because we do know that works do not save us. And so if you read this, that women are only saved by faith plus childbirth, we already agree that that's wrong. But let's look from some of the examples so in Acts 18, we find the story of Priscilla. Let me get over there. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
So some will say, if you follow a, a complementary, well, actually, they both took them aside, but it was Aquila, the husband, who explained the lady didn't teach. But it seems to be there in unity. But also, in Romans, one of the books that we look to for systematic theology, for, for Paul's kind of uh, Magna Carta there, 16 verse 1 as he commends those. Phoebe is servant in this version. The word servant can be translated deacon. And depending on what version of the Bible you're using in English, some of them say Phoebe a deacon, some of them say Phoebe a servant. We won't get into all that. But then also greet uh, Antichinus, I don't know how to say, and Juna, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to known to the apostles so other women are being lifted up not to mention the story of the old testament many women there my favorite is deborah called to be a judge of israel basically a king and again you can argue well being a leader of a country is different than being a leader in a church that we'd vote for a woman to be president if she's what what god has laid on our heart for civil service is completely separated from this world it takes a lot of work to think about these things. So what is appropriate? Is what you do in a church body, does it break down the community or does it build up? Does it align with all of scriptures, not just key verses? Or does it lift up the Spirit of God? Does it tell a girl who's laid on her heart to sing a song that you have no place to teach or to preach or to sing in this church? How does it work? I do know it has got cultural significance on how we live. For in some cultures, men are absent. They have been gone for years. As matriarch societies, the women call all the shots. And if anything is going to take place, it is through the women. And to bring in male leadership and put them above and have authority over women would just destroy their communities that they have built. So this is where I'm going to leave it. God has called us to be present, to be the incarnated word in the present time and place. So what God has laid on your heart, what God has called you to do as believers, don't quickly dismiss it if it's not what you're used to. Because some in this congregation had to miss the power of the gospel that saves all. And they chased wild and speculative dreams. And some had used their positions in the church as status symbols. And they wanted to speak over the heads of those who were called to serve. So it's not as clear cut as it can seem on the surface. But one thing you will see that when you look at qualifications, there's nowhere that the women are left out from offices of the church. Not meaning that they should serve everywhere, but they always are called when we look at the qualifications of the man. It's always important, how does his wife live? Is his wife an unbeliever? Is she a godly person? Or is she a troublemaker, a gossiper in this? Why is it important for the couple to be God-honoring if the one called into leadership is. 
Because God works with them as one. They are to become one flesh, and in reality, they are to serve together. We are all called to serve together. This is not about power. This is not about regulations. This is about God's call for our place, our time. And so that's why when we take these verses seriously, we can't use them as a weapon to attack the other party because that's not why Paul did this. Paul's ultimate goal was so that the community would have peace that the world they live in would have peace so that the gospel may flourish. Because when we live in a time of strife, people are closed off and guarded. But when we live in a time of peace, we are willing to entertain notions that we hadn't before. And Christ crucified to a dark world is a notion that needs to be considered. So please join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Give us the strength to listen to your voice, to listen to the Spirit, call our hearts, and move our people. Lord, let us have ears so that we may hear clearly. Let us hear clearly your message for us. Give us strong hands that we may do your work. And guide us in the future. Don't let us be comfortable with tradition for tradition's sake, but let us weigh all of our traditions in light of the gospel. Let us be your incarnated message to the place that we call home, no matter what avenues that may take us down. Teach us to be obedient to your voice. It is in your name we pray. Amen. And now as we enter our time of invitation... If you have decided to follow Jesus Christ for the first time and you want to let the world know about it, please come forward. Maybe you've been visiting this church for some time and today is the day that you are going to join us as fellow brothers and sisters. Please come forward or maybe you're simply in need of prayer.